Good morning. It's so good to see everybody today. Welcome to Southwinds for our worship this morning. We are jumping back into our study of the book of Acts uh, today. But before we get to Acts chapter 6, I have to ask a question. Is there anybody else here who is excited to see some dirt moving out there on a construction site? You've probably noticed that construction is now uh, truly underway. Uh, the work has begun on our new 700-seat auditorium that, God willing, we will uh, occupy in early November. That's the date that they have given us. And so I want to just encourage you to continue to pray that God blesses the work and blesses the process and just keeps everything moving. And that just leads me to share with you that we are now officially uh, just past the halfway point of our 36-month next-gen spiritual initiative. And as you can see on this slide right here, um, of $2.577 million that was committed. We have now, as a church, at the end of December, given $1.381,976. Uh, that means we're about 55% of the way uh, towards our goal, and that is a good place to be. And I want to say thank you to everybody who has given generously and given faithfully. And I also want to remind you, as that we stay faithful, uh, I know that we're going to see God do even uh, more incredible things. Now, some of you may be kind of new around Southwinds. Maybe you're just here for the first second time. Uh, if you're wondering what Next Gen is and what this is all about, please feel free to talk to me or Pastor Jay. Ask your questions. We would love to share with you uh, what God is doing here at Southwinds. Well, if you were here last fall, you know that we began an exploration of Luke's account of the early church, the first years uh, of the first Christ followers and the, the adventure they were on following Christ uh, in the book of Acts. And we started learning in our study of the first five chapters of Acts that God has called us as his people to be a sent people. That's what Acts is about. And I just want to remind you today uh, that church is not primarily a place for us to gather and for us to come and get our spiritual and our social needs met. Church is, first of all, a place where we come to submit our lives to and give our worship to the only true king, the God of creation, who has sent his son Jesus into this world to make right what we have made wrong. And we submit our lives and worship together, and it is out of that submission and worship that God sends us out into the world so that we can tell other people about who he is and so that other people can come to know him and other people can come to worship him. That is why we're here. We are sent. Now, in Acts 6, as we begin these first seven verses, uh, we're going to see that th this passage is about growing pains, growing pains. Now, how many of you, when you were growing up, at some point in your childhood experienced some physical growing pains. Just raise your hand if that happened to you. The, the studies that I've read say that physically as much as 20% of, of children experience physical growing pains. But growing pains are more than physical, right? They can come and impact us in a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the best examples I've heard about this comes from the life story of a, a guy named Anthony Davis. If you're an NBA fan, you already know who I'm talking about. He is the 6'11 power forward for the New Orleans Pelicans. He's 24 years old, and he is already considered to be one of the top 10 players in the NBA. Well, just a few short years ago, when Davis was a sophomore in high school, he was 6 feet 2 inches tall. 18 months later, when he was a senior, he was 6'10". He grew 8 inches in 18 months, and when he was 6'2", one school had recruited him, Cleveland State. Anybody ever heard of the Cleveland State program, basketball? By the time he got to 6'10", he was considered the number one high school recruit in the nation. I'm, now, you hear that and you think, that sounds great, right? Well, yeah, but it came with some pain, some cost. It, it cost his parents a lot of money. Can you imagine? Uh, his parents had to buy him new clothes and new shoes every few weeks. They, they had to buy him a new bed, king size, extra long. They kept taking him to the doctor because they thought something was wrong with him and they couldn't figure out what was going on. 
And then in basketball, which was where his life was headed, everything changed there. He had to learn how to rebound and box out and block shots instead of driving to the hoop. He had to learn to shoot hook shots instead of jump shots. All kinds of growing pains. Well, in the beginning of, Luke's, uh, of Acts 6, Luke, uh, he paints a picture of both the blessings and the challenges that come when God's people grow. And, and as we were studying the first five chapters last fall, we saw how God blessed this early church with incredible growth. Maybe you remember on the very first day of the church's existence, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ and they were baptized. That's Acts 2.41. Acts 2.47, Luke says that God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day, someone was coming to know Christ. In Acts 4.4, after this unbelievable healing of a man who had been crippled from birth, many more people believed. And Luke says at this point, the body of believers, this early church, they now numbered more than 5,000 men. Just men. We don't know how many women and children in addition to that. And then in Acts 5, verse 14, following uh, that terrible incident with Ananias and Sapphira, God's judgment on them, Luke writes, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And then we ended our study back in the end of November in Acts 5.42, and these are what the words Luke wrote. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Here's the, the deal. Scholars believe that at this point in the life of the early church, there were over 20,000 people who had trusted Christ. I mean, it's amazing. Would it surprise you to learn that this early church experienced some growing pains? Uh, we're going to see those growing pains in these verses, Acts 6, 1 through 7. And I'm going to show you four things that God wants us to do when God's church grows. So let's read God's word together. Luke writes, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, I wanted to read Pumbaa next, but it actually says <laughs> Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, these seven verses are pointing us towards some incredible growth that was happening. But alongside of this growth, there arose a very real challenge to these, these early Christ followers, something they had to face. And out of their response, I wanted to see four things that we should do when we see God working and God growing our church. Here's the first thing. You can write this down in your message notes. We should celebrate gospel-centered church growth. Celebrate gospel-centered church growth. Here's a question. Is it a good thing when a church grows? Now, almost everyone is going to say yes in theory because, like, why would you be against reaching people with the good news of Jesus? But here's the reality. When people are actually confronted, boots on the ground, in their day-to-day -day life with what happens when a church grows, well, many of them aren't so sure. See, in any church especially in a church like ours, growth means change. It always means change. And I've heard it said, no one likes change except for a wet baby. <laughs> See, when we grow, that means there's going to be new people. That means there's going to be maybe new service times. That means it's crowded at children's check-in. Do I have hear an amen from anybody out here? Uh, someone sits in your seat. 
see, I'm your pastor, okay, and I love you. Have I ever told you 11 o'clock is my favorite service? Don't, don't tell the other ones, okay? They don't need to hear that. Um, I know where you sit. You sit in the same place, right? And some of you get mad if somebody gets there first and sit in your seat. You're thinking, don't they know I paid for this seat? This is my seat. And the more new people come, the more people are going to sit in your seat. And then there's going to be traffic jams leaving church. See, sometimes we can find ourselves not really wanting to grow because we like what we already have. We like the way things are. Growth always brings some pain. Now, part of how we know that this passage is about growing pains is the way Luke structures these verses. Uh, he, He talks about growth in the first verse, verse 1, saying the number of disciples was increasing. And then in the last verse, verse 7, he talks about growth again, saying the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. This is a, a literary device known as an inclusio, which is spelled pretty much like it sounds. And it brackets the text, and it focuses our attention on what is between there. And so Luke is wanting us to see that growth is good He wants us to see that before he confronts us with the problems that growth can bring. I think Luke is reminding us that reaching people with the gospel is the point of church. This is why we're here. We're supposed to grow, and we need to be reminded of that because it's so easy for us to forget that and to start to think that church is really about me and meeting my needs and dealing with my problems in my life. But we also need to be reminded, I think, that the growth we pursue should be the right kind of growth. That's why I call it gospel-centered church growth. See, growth should happen because Christ's followers are truly passionately pursuing God in worship, because there is clear and relevant and practical biblical teaching, and because there is loving and compassionate ministry to people who have needs. See, when I talk about growth, I'm not just talking about growth for growth's sakes. I'm not talking about gimmicky growth. I'm not talking about the kind of growth that happens in some churches because there's this kind of entertainment or there's this kind of superficial teaching that causes people to come and hear because it's always addressing their, their wants. See, some churches do that. They try to entertain people and attract people with, with things that are splashy and spectacular without coming alongside and confronting people with truth, the truth that truly changes their lives. And so Luke wants us to see and he wants us to celebrate that it is gospel-centered, biblically-based growth that is good. This is actually a theme throughout the book of Acts. I've given you a list here of some of the summary statements that Luke makes. He makes at least 10 statements. And in these statements, he highlights numbers. He highlights growth. And this ought to remind some of us, if you have this tendency, if you're a person who sometimes finds yourselves being critical of a church because they're just all about the numbers. Luke counts people quite regularly in the book of Acts. And Luke counts people actually for the same reason we count people. We count people because people count. What does God think about numbers? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Well, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. God wrote a whole book about them, right? God obviously doesn't have a problem with numbers, and we see in Acts that the early church was counting. And so counting is not unspiritual. This is why we count around here, too. And so if you find yourself sometimes being offended or bothered, if I happen to mention how many people came, like, At Christmas Eve, we had 1,754 people who came. It's actually the most we've ever had at Christmas Eve services. We should celebrate that. You should not feel offended as if there's a problem with counting because all those numbers represent people. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. No one one uses this logic about their kids. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, we're not going to count our kids, you know, while we're on vacation because we don't want to be all about the numbers. You know, you have four kids, you're at the airport, and you're kind of looking around, you go, one, two, ah, who cares? Everybody's get on the plane. <laughs> no one would do that with their children, right? Why? Because they count. We, we count people because 
people count. And see, numbers are not important to us because we're into math, but because we're into people. And I just want to say it really straightforwardly. We believe that God wants us to grow at Southwinds even more in the days ahead. It is why we're building a new auditorium. It is not about our glory. It is about God's glory. We are adding thousands of feet of building space because there are tens of thousands of people in our area who do not know Jesus Christ, who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because we're trying to glorify ourselves, but because we are trying to give glory to God. We should care about numbers because every number represents a person. I want to make a prediction. Some of us are going to need to remember what I've been saying right now sometime in the near future. Because growth always interrupts our rhythms, our routines, and our comfort. And I'm just going to predict somehow for some of you in the next year or so, something's going to happen related to our growth, and it will bother or irritate or offend you. And you may need to remember that God wants us to celebrate gospel-centered church growth. What we do here is not about us first. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our routine. It's about God, and it's about other people. See, all of us should long for the day when this building is full and we have to add services. I long for us to have to add services because we don't have room. And it's not because I just have some compulsion to talk more than I already do. Some of you may not understand this or know this about me, but what I do up here is not really natural to my personality. I'm the kind of person who would be happy to not be in front of you all the time. In fact, you know, we all have our word limits and stuff. By the time I get done with this sermon, third sermon of the day, I will have used up my words for today, tomorrow, (laughs) Tuesday, and Wednesday, and I'll be into Thursday, probably. And so I don't have some compulsive need to talk more than I already do, but I do have a compulsion to share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus Christ, who will spend their eternity separated from him if they don't meet him. I want them to come. I want them to hear. And all of us should as well. I mean, what would it be like? I, I have a reason this has kind of came into my mind this week. What would it be like if sometime in the near future in our church we saw not only secular people who have no faith in any God of any kind coming to Jesus Christ, but we also saw Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. What if we saw Hindus coming to faith in Jesus Christ? What if they did that by the hundreds and they did that by the thousands? See, Jesus died for this world, and Jesus wants the people in this world to know him. And so Jesus loves good growth. And we should love it too. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Jesus, or Luke shows us that church growth inevitably leads to problems. And so we should expect problems. I want you to look again at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So in the midst of all this spectacular growth, the early church faces a problem. And it basically is this. They had two different groups of widows. There were the Hellenist widows. These were the widows who spoke Greek as their primary language. And there were the Hebrew or Hebraic widows. These were the natives of this area uh, of Jerusalem and the area who spoke Aramaic primarily. And these two different groups of people who who were Jews had come to faith in Christ. And now they were all together in the church. Here's what's probably happening. Because of a language barrier, the Hebrews were the majorities, the Hellenists the minority. Uh, The Hebrews were inadvertently neglecting the Hellenist widows in the distribution of the food. Luke never suggests that this is intentional. In all likelihood, it is just a result of the church's rapid growth. And if that's true, and I think it is, it it leads me to say this. Sometimes we want to dream and fantasize 
that the early church, the first church, the church in Acts, they had no problems. And sometimes people say, why can't we be more like the New Testament church, the church in Acts? But there's a problem with saying that, and that problem is that question is really based on something that wasn't ever true. It wasn't real. You know, I say something every time when we have Discovery 101, our membership class, I say something like this. I say to the people that are there, if you ever find a perfect church, please do not join it because you will screw it up. (laughs) See, the bottom line is there is no such thing as a perfect church. And the Bible's always been really clear on this. Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter, verses 47 to 50. It's called the parable of the net. And you may remember that story. It's a story about catching a lot of fish. And what Jesus basically said was, whenever you catch fish, there will be a mess. There will be good fish. There will be bad fish. And he says, I'm going to sort it all out on the last day. See, Jesus assumes that every time there is a catch of people, there will be problems. People come with problems. Some of those people won't be genuine believers. Some of those people will bring drama. Not all growth is pure and positive, and it never is, and it never has been. In fact, we've already seen this in the book of Acts. Just go back one chapter, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. In just a a couple of weeks, we're going to meet another guy, same kind of deal. His name is Simon the Magician in Acts 8. There's more than just this But you keep going through Acts, we see doctrinal confusion in Acts 18. We get to Acts 19, and the the gospel is introduced to Ephesus, and there's all sorts of occult practices inside the church, all kinds of conflict and drama. We need to remember that in the church, there will always be problems, always be sheep and goats, always be wheat and tares, always good fish, always bad fish. And it is a mistake to romanticize or idealize the early church in Acts as if (laughs) there just weren't any problems. I mean, is this a model church? Yes, of course. Is it a perfect church? No, not at all. Did the early church have lots of wins? Yes, they did. Did they fail at some things? Yes, they really did. And this is a failure. You may never put this in a sentence together, but the apostles failed right here. They're not taking care of widows. And that's a problem because the Bible says a whole lot of things about caring for widows. What this shows us, and you may want to write this down, is that even good churches fail at some things. And this is a really good church. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, you know, you ask somebody there, where do you go to church? I go to the church in Acts. (laughs) Who's your pastor, Peter? I mean, that's pretty impressive, right? You know, what are you going to say? That church needs new leadership. I mean, this is the apostles you know, Peter, you read this, have you read this? Peter walks by people, his shadow falls on them, and they get healed. I've tried this at the hospital. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't work. I mean, you know. You, you look at these guys, you go, they need to teach the Bible. Well, these guys wrote the Bible. I mean, how are you going to improve on that? And yet, they have a failure. You see, even the best churches fail at things. Even good leaders fail at things. And so we learn from the church in Acts by their example, but we're also encouraged to know that if they had problems, we're probably going to have a few as well, right? Uh, One of the things that we should remember in this area is that there's a difference between sin and human limitation. See, failure isn't always the result of sin, but sometimes simply human limitations, so why did this happen? Did the, the apostles hate widows? Of course not. They were the ones caring for widows. They'd been doing that, but it's, the church has grown to the point where they don't have enough bandwidth now. There's only so much they could do. And so we're just reminded here that we should have realistic expectations of people, that we should show grace to one another, and that we should be very careful. Some of you need to hear this. Be very careful in assigning motive to others when we think they're not meeting expectations. Maybe they're just human beings. So if it's a failure because of human limitations, then you learn from it and you grow from it. If it's a failure because of sin, then you repent. And we don't really get the sense as we read this text that the apostles 
have a sin issue here. It's more like a capacity issue. But it's a real issue. It's a legitimate issue. They need to care for widows. This is an issue of justice. Uh, More than that, they can't overlook Greek-speaking widows. This is a cultural issue. If we kind of move that up to our present day, it's something akin to like a racial issue. This is the kind of thing that could have turned into something very destructive, a real mess. And so the apostles needed to respond to it. I want you to notice, just to kind of break it down, seven problems that were confronting the apostles, that if they didn't take care of these things and address them, could have really damaged the church. Here's the first thing. They, they had to be about protecting the unity of the church. This is a very important issue. And, and uh, it, there's this underlying cultural tension that's going on here. Let me, let me explain. The Greek-speaking widows were mostly probably uh, women who had lived a good part of their lives somewhere else in the Mediterranean world, somewhere outside of Jerusalem, and they had adopted, uh, adopted the language uh, and culture of these other lands. They spoke Greek, the language of commerce, but they'd come back to Jerusalem in their twilight years, maybe after their husbands had died. And so they were different culturally. And maybe not surprisingly, the natives of that land, the Hebraic Jews, tended to look down on them. We know that the Pharisees despised these Jews who lived in other parts of the world as traitors. And in fact, next week we'll notice in verse 9 of chapter 6, there is a reference to a separate synagogue that the Greek-speaking Jews met in. And so they were meeting these Jewish people in different synagogues. And there's a good chance in the church that the the Hebrew-speaking widows looked down on the Greek-speaking widows. But then on the other side, in verse 1, it also says the Greek-speaking widows were complaining against the Hebrew widows, which is something the Bible says we're not to do. It wasn't wrong for them to be bothered by this neglect in the distribution of the food, but they, they shouldn't have been complaining against the Hebrew widows. They should have taken this issue to the leaders. Now, you look at this, and you get real, and it's not really surprising. Two different language groups who had been worshiping as Jewish people in different buildings, now they both become Christians, and it's not really a shock that some conflict emerges, right? They may have just brought with them some of their prior suspicions and even some hatreds with them into the church. And when there's suspicion, when there's misunderstanding, that tends to breed separation. And you have to deal with it. And the only way you can deal with it is to have conversations, even awkward conversations. You get to the root, you clear the air. And so what do the apostles do? Well, they call a meeting to try to deal with this problem and protect the unity of the church. There's a second problem that's here, and that is that the apostles are just trying to keep up with meeting all of the legitimate needs. Again, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, scholars think that there's probably about 20,000 people in the church. And you can imagine how things have changed for the apostles. You know, in the early days of the church, when the numbers were a lot smaller, they probably were ministering to these widows and able to handle it. But now 12 guys are trying to take care of all of the widows, maybe hundreds of these widows, along with all of their other duties. I mean, I can just envision it early on. You know, they had an apostles meeting and Peter said, okay, guys, we're going to wrap this up now. I'm going to head over to Costco and pick up groceries for Esther and deliver them on my donkey. And John says, that's good. I'm going to take some groceries to Ruth. And they just knew everybody and they handled everybody. But now they got tons of people, no Microsoft Excel spreadsheet to plan their schedule. They haven't read any books on how to scale your business. You know, there's just so many needs, which leads to the third problem, overcoming overburdened leadership. These guys just can't do it all. And so they say in verse 2, it's not right for us to give up prayer and the ministry of the word to serve tables. They know the widows have to be cared for, but they can't do it. And this leads to another problem that could emerge. It wouldn't be surprising, dealing with criticism. Even when they offered their solution, do you think everybody's going to like their solution? I mean, let's just say Peter had been caring for Esther, that widow, and she liked it when Peter came over. She said, you know, every time Peter comes over and shadow falls on me, I feel a lot better. And now she says, who's this Nicanor guy? I don't know who he is. I want Peter. You know, not everybody's going to be happy with the solution. There's going to be criticism. I'm sure there's a lot of drama that was going on. And then fifth, 
They were just trying to keep priorities in order, what matters most. I don't know if any of you have ever thought this or not and realized this, but there is always in the life of the church, always, always, always more ministry needs to be met than any pastor or any team of pastor can ever do. Always. And along with that, there are typically always people ready to criticize. And the pressure is great on pastors many times who neglect the central call of God on their lives, prayer and ministry of the word. The sixth problem that was confronted was just sharing the work of ministry. So if we all agree that a group of people, a small group can't get it done, how do we all get it done? And we see what the apostles do here. They delegate the work to others. For this to work out, you need leaders willing to delegate and release, but you also need other people willing to step up and willing to serve. It takes both. And then finally, the problem of advancing the mission while managing people. It's kind of an interesting thing that we see emerging here in these verses. It's, it's this realization that the church is both an organism and an organization. It's a body. It's the body of Christ. It's living but it's also something that has structure. And that means that the church requires attention to mission and also to management. They're both important. But have any of you noticed that some pastors are pretty good with management, but not so good with mission? And some pastors are pretty good with mission, but not so good with management. And very few pastors are very good at both. But you need people to take care of each side both management and mission. See, this is their big dilemma. These challenges are in front of them. So what do they do? How do they respond? Well, here's the third thing that we should do when God's church grows. Uh, Protect priorities while lovingly responding to real needs. Now look again at verses 2 through 4. Luke writes, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So they call a meeting, and I just wonder how many people were there. It could have been a huge gathering, I mean, with all of these people. And they say to the people that had gathered, it would not be right. And literally, this phrase could be translated, it would not be pleasing And then you ask, well, pleasing to whom? And the answer is pleasing to God. It would not be pleasing to God if we gave up prayer and the ministry of the word. And this is a very big thing to say because the Bible is crystal clear that God cares deeply about widows and God calls his people to care for widows. So what are they doing? Well, they're they're protecting priorities. They're saying, we can't stop praying. We can't stop preaching God's word. Widows are very important and caring for them is biblical But if we don't preach the gospel, we're not going to have a church. And that's always true. If you don't preach the gospel and you meet needs like this, you may have a food ministry, you may have a homeless shelter, but you don't have a church without the preaching of the gospel. And so their solution is to appeal to the entire body to say, God has called us to focus on these priorities. And they ask the body, you pick men and seven men who will lead this initiative. Now, I'm going to unpack this, but I want to make an observation here. I want you to realize this problem would have grown worse, would have led to an even greater problem if the apostles had solved it in the wrong way. Fixing a problem by any means would have been disastrous if it had led them to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, I bring this up to to our current time in, in this way, and From time to time, people approach leadership in a church like ours, and they have a need. They have a passion. They see a problem. And their general assumption is that because they see a need or a problem, that our church is called to meet it. And for many of those people, it means you, the pastors, are called to meet it. And if, here's the thing. If we as pastors take everything on us and begin to try to do everything that we feel God has called us to do and everything you think God has called us to do, it's not going to end in a good place. Does that make sense? 
And so we need to see that they had to solve the problem, but they had to solve it in the right way. They had to protect priorities. It's not either or, it's both and, while at the same time finding a way to lovingly meet needs. So here's what they did. Three things I want to mention. They kept prayer and the ministry of the word first. That's the first thing. That's the priority they had to protect. Now, I want to be clear about this. In case you wonder, this is not about the apostles seeing themselves as above serving tables. The fact is they were already doing that. They had been doing that. And on top of this, when you see the qualifications they put for people to serve tables, you see how highly they valued this role. It's also not about the apostles wanting to get out of work. In saying what they said here, they're making a commitment to continue to work. Uh, Acts 5.42, go back to the end of that chapter. It says that the apostles were teaching every day, all day. How many of you ever taught all day? And then they got beat up on the sides. And, you know, they were working very hard. They weren't taking the easy road. And, and the truth is, when you boil it down, they were still serving. In fact, it's an interesting thing. In verse 4, where it says, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Circle that word ministry. That word ministry is the Greek word diakonia. It's a form of the word for service. You could translate it, uh, the service of the word. It's the same word form that's used in verse 2, where it says they are to wait on or literally to serve tables. And so what the apostles are really saying is, we will serve the word and you will serve the tables Everybody's serving. But God had called them to focus in on preaching and prayer. A wise older pastor told a younger pastor this. He said, in your life, you will find people who are constantly trying to plan your life. And that happens for leaders. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but if you read the Gospels and pay attention, you will see that even Jesus prioritized Do you realize that Jesus didn't meet every need that he encountered? Do you realize that Jesus walked away from some needs that were real and pressing in order to stay focused on God's call on his life? Let me really quickly give you a passage. I'm going to read through this, but you can look it up for yourself later. Mark 1, 35 to 39 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So he's focusing on that. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. In other words, Jesus, we have a bunch of needs here. Jesus, we have a lot of people who need you. And listen to what Jesus says to what Simon and his friends and his companions say. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So they He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Those were real needs, but Jesus knew that he couldn't meet them all. Jesus knew he had a call in his life to go to the next town, to preach throughout Galilee, ultimately to go to the cross where he would pay the price to purchase the salvation for our sins through his death. What I found as a leader and many of you who have led have discovered this as well, is that most of the time, the decisions we have to make are not about good versus bad. More often, they are about good versus best, right? And so what we see here is the church being mobilized to meet spiritual needs and physical needs, and both are important. But the apostles knew you cannot neglect spiritual need in an effort to meet only physical needs. Here's what you need to understand if you, if you haven't yet. Pastors are called primarily to shepherd the flock, which means to feed the flock. And this is the central thing that we are held accountable for God. And I just want to tell you, just to be real honest with you, you want me to focus the majority of my time in prioritizing time in the Word and time in prayer. And it doesn't mean that I'm above serving. And in some churches, thankfully not this one, in some churches, people constantly demand that pastors meet all of their needs. And in many churches, they destroy the pastors and they damage their own churches. We have to stay focused on the priorities. Second thing they do is choose wise, godly leaders. 
Now, let's be really clear. They, they do not see this as a menial task. They understand it's a very important ministry that demands great leadership. And we, we might think, wait on tables, serve tables. Hey, just throw any warm body at it. Doesn't really matter. But they don't see it that way. They lay out requirements. I see four things that they ask. They said, first, these people must be believers. Verse three, they come from among you. Second, they needed to be someone who possessed good reputation. In other words, it's not about talents and ability, but it's about character. Third, this person should be full of the Spirit, not someone constantly given over to their flesh. They're finding victory in their life by submission to the Spirit. And fourth, full of wisdom. This is the ability to apply God's truth to life situations, the the ability to get to the best end by the best means. And think about this. It's an interesting thing. They were going to need wisdom because the 12 apostles couldn't do this by themselves. These seven people couldn't do this by themselves. These seven were going to lead the initiative. They were going to have to figure out ways to involve more people than just them. So they needed wisdom. This just reminds us in all this that God calls pastors as shepherds to feed the flock. And God calls others to come alongside and to serve in the ways that they have been gifted and equipped. It's just kind of amazing to to see what is laid out here, these requirements. Let me point something else to you that we wouldn't see as English speakers. But all seven of these men have Greek names. The apostles are showing great wisdom This means that all seven of these men are Hellenists. They all are connected to the people who have been neglected. They are going to be able to bridge this gap. Third thing they do is they empower leaders to serve. They appoint these men, and then they hand over the authority to them. Uh, Look at at verse 6. It says, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so what evidently happened is once these men were selected, they brought them up in front of the, of, of the congregation where people could see who they were, and they prayed for them publicly. They laid their hands on them. They commissioned them as big symbol. They were giving them authority to lead. And churches are healthy when leaders are willing to let others lead and to make mistakes. They set them free. They give them ministry. They don't micromanage them. They let them learn and grow from their mistakes. And churches are healthy when people are willing to step up and take responsibility and give themselves to service. I hope you can see how just love and unity permeate these verses. This thing that could have turned disastrous, it didn't devolve into some huge church fight. And I have to think that as they worked through the problem and began to serve out of that, that it really began to get the attention of the community around them. Because here was this group of people radically caring for widows, also totally devoted to the preaching of the gospel. And it leads me to say we can do both as well. We can be a church of word and works, but it requires everyone participating. Let me show you real quickly the final thing we see. Uh, When God's church grows, we should respond by seeing growth problems as an opportunity for more growth. Now, I love verse 7. The drama is taken care of, at least for a time, and Luke writes, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this is amazing. What you're seeing here, this is the evangelistic consequences of them dealing with the challenge that that faced them as they grew. The number of disciples increased rapidly. They dealt with the problem, and as a result, many, many people became followers of Jesus. Uh, This is really actually a a great paradigm. It's really the normal church rhythm. Preach, pray, grow, drama. (laughs) Manage the drama. And then you start over again. Preach, pray, grow, get ready for more drama. Manage the drama. Rinse, repeat. I mean, it just, it just keeps going that way. And, and we really actually see this sort of thing in the book of Acts. And as we see what happens in these moments of drama, what we see is the church gets purified and the church grows stronger and doctrine gets clarified. This is actually something that's been going on for 2,000 years now through the history of the church. Uh, some of you know that I have a PhD in a, 
a field called historical theology, and you say, what's that? Well, it's actually the study of the development of doctrine through the history of the church. And when you boil that down, what it's really about is Christians fighting over their interpretations and coming to agreement. It's about controversies. And what we see when it's done right through history, not only in the book of Acts, but in the years since that time, is that when there's conflict and there's controversy and people work through it, doctrine gets clearer and people grow stronger in their faith. You see, conflict and problem can be huge opportunities to strengthen the church, and that's actually what happens here. Let me give you something practical to to keep in mind next time you see a problem. If this is true, and it is, that means you don't have to view problems here at Southlands as if the sky were falling. And there are some of us who tend to go there. We see a problem. We think, oh, no, this church is horrible. Oh, no, this church is never going to survive. It's not true. When you see problems in the church, remind yourself of God's promise to build his church. You can see a sovereign Lord over all of it, even the promise. Sovereign Lord who has said, I will build my church in the gates of hell, and even the hell and his widows will not prevail against it. God is saying, I'm going to build my church in such a way that even the priests become Christians. Do you notice that? Who are the priests? Well, they're the ones who earlier in this book in Acts 4 were persecuting the apostles, imprisoning imprisoning the apostles. The priests are the ones who were standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus, shouting, crucify him as he hung on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And now, Luke says, not just a few, but a great many of the priests have become believers Maybe you're not a Christian today, yet. Maybe you find yourself getting angry when you hear the gospel. Maybe, maybe you don't even want to be here. Maybe somebody dragged you here. You're only here because they twisted your arm, and you're not happy about it. I want to say to you today, you may need to watch out, because something might happen. These priests were angry. You know, there are actually some people here in this room right now, and I know some of you, you used to be there. You used to be like that. You used to not want to hear the gospel. You didn't like it. You didn't want to hear it. It made you mad. But then one day came, and God changed your heart, and he opened your eyes, and now you are so glad you're here. You are so filled with joy to hear God speak through his word, to see how he has changed your life. See, part of what this text reminds us of is the power of the gospel. Friends, God can convert anyone. And I want to tell you, if you don't think he can convert you, you just better watch out. I think God likes the challenge. And if he takes you on, I just have to tell you, you're not going to win. God can convert anyone even the guy that doesn't want to be there, even the guy that doesn't want to hear it. And guess what? One day, that guy is now a pastor. You know, this is just speculation, but I kind of think based on Paul's life that that many of these priests probably became pastors in Jesus' church. And so think about now the guys who are shouting, crucify him, they're preaching the very gospel that Jesus' crucifixion brought to life. I was thinking about that, and I started thinking, wouldn't it be awesome if we started meeting with and sharing with our neighbors who don't even believe in God at all, don't have any faith at all, and they came to Christ? What if we started meeting with some of our neighbors who are Muslims, some of our neighbors who are Hindus, and they came to faith in Christ? What if one day coming out of Southwind's church, there was a former imam, and he started preaching? And God sent him to Fremont, where there are thousands and thousands of Afghan Muslims, so many Muslims in the city of Fremont. Do you know this? I was talking this week to a man who is a missionary to Muslims in Fremont. It is his full-time calling and job. What if a former Muslim went there and joined him? Do you know there's about 250,000 Muslims in the Bay Area? It's about a similar number of Hindus in the Bay Area. What if a great number of those 
of people who have other religions became believers in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. See, this text shows us it can happen. Let's not doubt that it can happen. When you hear people criticize Christians, they're just dumb sheep, superstitious people, cynical people. Those priests were like that. Those priests would have said, there's no rational person who would believe that someone can rise from the dead. They might be surprised by grace. And those guys didn't deserve God's grace, but nobody deserves God's grace. Those guys hated Jesus, but you know what? God has a specialty in converting enemies. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus died for and loves his enemies. And this is just such a great paradigm for how we should love, for how optimistically we should view this world. See, the church is filled with problems. The church is filled with drama. I mean, the church usually has more drama than a middle school cafeteria. (laughs) But you know what? The Lord is always on his throne. The Lord is always building his church. And so let's seek the salvation of everyone. Let's celebrate gospel-centered growth. And let's know that when we grow, we will have drama. So let's have realistic expectations of people. Let's show grace to people. Let's recognize there's a difference between sin and limitations. Let's listen to people who are struggling. And let's play as a team. And remember that if you're a member here, you're not a fan. You're on the team. You are sent. We're all sent And let's remember that people are watching us. You know, I imagine these priests were watching. We don't have time to delve into this, but most of the priests in Jerusalem were poor and hardly ever had enough to eat. And I think they knew what it was like to be poor and they knew what it was like to have responsibility to care for the poor. And I think when they saw the church doing that and doing that remarkably well, it had to impact them. See, people are watching us today, and we need to to pray that we would be a kind of people with a balance of word and works. See, let's just go into the future. Let's see God grow this place, and let's all be encouraged by the fact that Jesus is always, always building his church, and we're a part of it, and nothing will ever stop it. Let's pray. Father God, we we bless you today, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege of being part of this body. Lord, help us to protect biblical priorities, and help us, Lord, to be wise as we face problems. Lord, help us to be eager to see our friends and neighbors, Lord, even our enemies converted, and help us to believe that you can do that. Lord, I pray that during this season of transition, that you would maintain the unity of our church, that you would use us to reach even more people, Lord, for your glory. And Father, as we prepare for the Lord's table now, would you prepare our hearts? Would you help us to be grateful today for the death and the resurrection of the great servant himself, Jesus the Christ? It is in his name that we pray these things. And all God's people said...